according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Turn to Matthew 16 as we get started this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. We're dealing with Peter's great confession. Thou art the Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Super answer. Because of that, I'm going to start a Catholic church and you get to be the first pope. Okay, no, that's not the case. Uh, However, this is the text that the Roman church utilizes to validate their views and their traditions and their theories as to the uh, preeminence of the Bishop of Rome having sovereignty over every other pastor teacher on the planet. We uh, will break, we'll spend some time to break down the vocabulary on this. He is speaking to Petros in the masculine and refers to this Petra in the feminine. And uh, he changes genders in the two terms when he says, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church. It is a play on words. It it's certainly recognizes uh, Peter's given name, his nickname that Christ himself gave him that nickname. Uh, and yet the change in genders makes it clear that the foundation is not Peter. The foundation is the confession that he makes with respect to Christ as the son of the living God. So we will address that. We're not quite to that point yet. I expect we'll be doing that next week. For today, we're looking at the confusion, the confusion of the people. Some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Still others say that you're Jeremiah or uh, one of the prophets, and uh, we'll have to examine that confusion here today. Before we begin, though, let's take time for silent prayer to make sure that each believer priest is filled with the Holy Spirit and equipped to handle spiritual truth. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have this morning to assemble together. We uh, ask for distractions to be set aside. We ask for concentration upon your truth. Father, we just rejoice that you are faithful to, to continue the freedom that our nation enjoys, the freedom that we have to assemble together in a public building with a sign out front. Father, not, uh, not gathering in fear of the government uh, taking us off to prison or uh, other opponents coming in and, and throwing grenades around and killing everyone. Father, we have a tremendous freedom and tremendous grace. And we want to just praise your name because you're the one that supplied it. We haven't earned it or deserved it. It is a grace provision. We thank you for it. Father, set aside distractions now and take every thought captive in obedience to Christ Jesus. Open our eyes to see. We know what the, the false approach is to this passage. Open our eyes to the true approach. Bless us in this study. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Robert, why don't you give him a hand there? There you go. Gary's trying to grab the door there from the wheelchair. It's just not kind of awkward. All right. In the outline, we've covered point one already, realizing that this is a test. The Lord is using the question and answer method in order to ascertain where his disciples are. What kind of discernment do they have? Are they aware of what's being spoken? And how do they evaluate that? Altogether, this becomes a very effective means of training Uh, One that we employ here, one that we will continue to employ as we train pastors and evangelists and all 11 spiritual gifts. Uh, We'll use the question method. What do you think about such and such? You know, there's there's an emergent church out there. What do you think about the emergent church? Or what do you think about uh, Pentecostalism? Or what do you think about the Roman Catholic theology? Or what do you think about that all-millennial view? 
And recognizing where those positions are is huge. So Christ said, what do the people say that the Son of Man, or who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And he's able to evaluate their responses. So it's a two-part question. The first part is, what is their understanding? And then the second part is, what is your understanding? The contrast is a strong contrast designed to demonstrate the value of divine viewpoint. The value of divine viewpoint and how worthless public opinion is based on human viewpoint. And we have to do the same thing today. We have to do it with our children. As uh, uh, you, know, you ask them, uh, what does the school tell you uh, is the origin of the universe? See, and what do you say? What does, the, what does the public school tell you about uh, engaging in premarital sexual activity? And what do you say? And hopefully uh, the answers as far as what do you say line up with what does God say? What is the word of God's viewpoint on the matter? So, so if their testimony is consistent with God's viewpoint, then we realize that we are truly teaching our children what they need to know. These questions in our point two, these questions centered on the identity of Jesus on his identity, who is he, who is the Son of Man, are they putting together the promises with the appearance? That is, everything they were expecting in the Old Testament. Are they matching up those expectations with Jesus of Nazareth as revealed, as displayed, as manifest by the Father? And in this case, uh, the people are having a real hard time with it. Now, it's interesting that he asked them about the I am, and he also asked them about the term son of man. And uh, we handled both of those already. I am under subpoint A and the son of man, where we ran out of time last week. But with respect to this, look at their confusion. You've got to, you've got to identify the I am with Yahweh, with Jehovah. That's what I am is all about. When uh, Moses was sent to deliver Israel out of Egypt, he said, well, who shall I say sent me? And he said, tell them I am. That is his personal name, his proper name. That is the significance behind the memorial name of Yahweh. They speak of Yahweh to this day with this reverence, and they don't even pronounce Yahweh. They come to it in the text. They say Adonai instead. But Yahweh was the memorial name to to Israel, to the nations, and he's the redeemer that brought them out of Egypt. The significance behind Yahweh, though, was the Aye message of I am. I am. He is the only self-existent being in the universe, the only uncreated, unborn, eternal I am being in the universe. And so the statement here, who do the people say the Son of Man is, but who do you say that I am carries a tremendous doctrinal impact. So we have to identify Jesus of Nazareth as that expected Messiah Christ. It's non-negotiable. There were other debates as well. And we're going to see that these other debates came into play with respect to their confusion. A second debate was who was was this expected prophet supposed to be? Moses spoke about a coming prophet. All right. And uh, we spent some time on this a week ago back in Deuteronomy 18 and again here in John 1. Uh, this expected prophet. Moses said that, that the Lord would lift up a prophet like unto me from among your countrymen. And so this was a debate. Israel was waiting for a prophet to arise, and they just weren't sure if it was going to be the same as the Messiah when the Messiah arose. Or whether the prophet Moses spoke about was the coming Elijah that Isaiah and Micah spoke about, or Malachi spoke about. 
So this was another debate. They expected Moses-like prophet. Again, if you're not, if you if you weren't with us last week, or you're not familiar with it, or uh, you were here last week, but you weren't paying attention. Deuteronomy has the promise of this coming prophet, and he said that they will come. And uh, Deuteronomy 18:18, 18, 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, speaking to Moses, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And he truly is a, a uh, fulfillment of the Moses typology. Moses redeemed Israel out of bondage. Jesus redeems humanity out of bondage. That is the bondage to the slave market of sin. So Moses is a shadow of Christ, and we understand that. But for all these hundreds of years, 1,500 years from when Moses first revealed this, the, the Bible scholars were in a big debate. Who is this prophet that Moses was talking about? We know he's coming, but is he, is he the same as the coming Christ? Or should we look for two different? Should we look for this prophet in Christ? And then uh, in Isaiah and in Malachi, we have word that Elijah, the prophet, is going to come as a forerunner, as a herald. And that led to more questions. And, and, and it was not exactly clear. We can admit that. They, could, they were left kind of scratching their heads saying, okay, we're looking for a Christ. And we're looking for a prophet who might be the Christ or might not. And we're looking for the forerunner who is Elijah, the prophet. And so, but maybe the Moses-like prophet is Elijah the prophet, right? So maybe we're looking for two, maybe we're looking for three. They obviously had a minimum of two because they were expecting a forerunner to herald the Christ. So they were looking for two at a minimum, but possibly a third. If this Moses prophet, Moses-like prophet, was neither the, the herald or the Christ, then it was legitimate for them to consider that maybe there was a third on the way. Does that make sense? So that leads to some of the confusion. Now, we, with hindsight, with the New Testament, we have it spelled out very clear that the Moses-like prophet was the Christ, that he is the fulfillment of what was spoken there in Deuteronomy 18. But at the time, it was not so clear. Also, this title, Son of Man, was a stumbling block. The title, Son of Man, was a stumbling block. I got very angry about it in John 12. Who is this Son of Man? What are you talking about? Right? <laughs> and uh, I think the reason why is because it didn't fit. It didn't fit with the Jewish expectations. Son of David was wonderful. Son of David is very Jewish. Right? The son of David is the, the title for their Jewish king on the Jewish throne with dominion over the Gentiles worldwide. Very popular. But son of man. That de-emphasizes the Jewishness of it, doesn't it? And highlights the humanity. And uh, whereas they recognize the Abrahamic covenant, in you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, they accept that, but they accept that on their terms. All the nations of the earth will be blessed, but through the Jews, through the son of David reigning on the throne of David. So the title Son of Man was not one that they, uh, they appreciated. And we looked at John 12:34 and Matthew 22:42. I also gave you under subpoint B then all of these scriptures in terms of the Son of Man, and I can't even list. I didn't try to list all 84 of them on the screen. I gave you simply the Gospel of Matthew citations. Uh, get a concordance out if you want an exhaustive list, or do a computer search for the phrase Son of Man through the Gospels. Uh, 84 times in the Gospels, this phrase is uh, is everywhere. 
And I simply listed the Matthew references starting in 820 and taking you all the way to chapter 26. Um, but I want you to see now the significance of these. And so this is up to speed with where we ran out of time last week. Um, actually, I don't think we, we can run through Matthew pretty quickly. Let's just keep it all in one gospel. Matthew 820. We'll get a sense for how this is used in, uh, in one gospel anyway. But keep in mind, this is throughout all four gospels. A scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, when you find out what a hard road it is, you're not going to be so eager to follow me in the ministry. So there's the Son of Man. Again, reference to himself. This is the most common term that Jesus uses when speaking of himself. Nothing else even comes close. It's not even, there's not even a close second. The Son of Man is his primary way to reference himself. Uh, next chapter over, chapter 9 and verse 6, where he, again, he's proving his commission. And he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? Say, uh, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. What proof do you have? <laughs> right? No one's going to know until the judgment seat of Christ whether it was true or not. Yeah, I can tell anybody that your sins are forgiven. No one knows until glory. So the earthly illustration and demonstration then, let's show a work of divine power so that uh, it's recognized that God is indeed with him. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. And he did. And so he said what was harder to say in the sense of demanding an immediate proof versus what's easy to say because there is no immediate proof. And because he did the harder, then the other is self-evident. Anyway, there's the expression, son of man. And he has authority to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Indeed, great rhetorical question. And yet, the son of man forgives sins. Next chapter over, 1023. You will be hated by all because of my name. But it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, I hate it when people use that in a gospel salvation kind of approach. We know this has nothing to do with the gospel uh, believing and receiving eternal life kind of salvation. This has to do with the tribulation of those days when they're being persecuted and put to death. And remarkably enough, and obviously enduring to the end means you've got to live long enough for the Christ to return at second advent so that uh, when he does return for the battle of Armageddon and the destruction of the adversaries, uh, adversaries there, that uh, you'll uh, survive the great tribulation. But notice... Hated because of my name. The Jewish people have been hated for centuries. Anti-Semitism and every attempt to exterminate the Jews. But have they, been ex have they been hated for the name of Jesus Christ? Hated for the sake of the name of Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Savior of the world. I would submit to you this morning that they have not been hated on behalf of the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They've been hated for lots of other reasons. But in the tribulation, amazingly enough, after, remember, after the church is raptured, think about it, there's no more believers on the planet. And folks start getting saved not long after the rapture. And rather than being ushered into the church, they are Jewish uh, uh, believers or Gentile believers and so forth. But the first 
massive wave of, of salvation that takes place after the rapture is Jewish. A whole lot of Jews start to put two and two together and come to Christ. There's some angelic witnesses going on too. But anyway, 144,000 of them, before we know it, are not only saved, but, uh, but are undertaking their own evangelism, worldwide evangelism ministry. And what are they evangelizing? What are they preaching? They're preaching Jesus Christ. The Jewish evangelists of the tribulation are preaching that Jesus of Nazareth from 2,000 years ago was the Christ, is the Christ, and is the source of eternal life. So that gives us a tribulational context for this worldwide hatred. They've been hated for thousands of years, but never because of the name of Jesus Christ. So whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Second Advent promise, looking forward to the return of the Son of Man. Chapter 11. In verse 19, I think that's why the Jews hated him so much. He wasn't playing, marching to their drum or dancing to their tune. Neither did the Baptist either. John, as the Baptist, the baptizer, came neither eating nor drinking, and they said he had his, has a demon. See, he'd be real popular among Baptist circles today because, well, he was a Baptist, John the Baptist. But he would be... Even more popular because he would not touch a drop of alcohol. Not a drop. Under a lifelong Nazarite vow, not one drop of alcohol ever touched his lips. And they said, ah, he has a demon. What a weirdo. Right? Christ, on the other hand, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. That is, he was not under Nazarite vow uh, restrictions. He had grace and freedom and, and liberty to eat and to consume alcohol. See, there's the contrast. Some people try to prove to me that Jesus never touched a drop of alcohol. I say, well, wait a minute. That's not what this verse says. This verse says that he's the contrast with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is the one that never touched a drop of alcohol. Jesus did, in moderation, of course. When they said that John was demon-possessed, they said Jesus is a drunkard, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, friend of tax collectors and sinners, you know. Kind of hard to call a guy a drunkard if he never touches a drop. See, no, he, he did. He consumed alcohol in moderation, in the proper venues and settings and all the rest. Not to drunkenness. Gluttony and drunkenness are sins, and he never sinned. Anyway, the contrast is with John and the Son of Man there in chapter 11. Three more uses in chapter 12. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. That ought to tell you something. Recognizing, of course, that, the, that man was not created for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for the man. And who has sovereignty? The Son of Man. He doesn't have sovereignty over the Sabbath because of his deity. He has sovereignty over the Sabbath as the Son of Man. More will go into that later on. Chapter, uh, verse 32. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. Verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. All right. Anyway, there's a ton more on this. Let's just uh, we take, take forever to go through the rest of those. Uh, let's go back to Daniel. Let's go back to Daniel 7. And I want you to see the title Son of Man has an Old Testament foundation. In a great prophetic message in Daniel 7, 
and in the typology of the person Ezekiel. We'll start with the Daniel application. Daniel and Ezekiel were both contemporaries. They both ministered during the captivity, during the Babylonian captivity. In Daniel 7, this chapter, we've got lots of notes on this chapter from our Daniel and Revelation series, and the MP3s are out there, but um, there's a lot of back and forth from earth to heaven to earth to heaven to earth to heaven, a lot of scenes back and forth in this chapter. And uh, all the earthly scenes are tribulational with Antichrist and everything else going on. The heavenly scenes, though, are quite remarkable. And um, we've got the Ancient of Days who's introduced in verse 9. It's not explained exactly who the Ancient of Days is in verse 9, but we just see him, and we see him seated, and we see his vesture and his hair and on all of this. And we're told that uh, in verse 9, thrones, plural, were set up, but only one takes a seat. A whole bunch of thrones are set up, but only one takes a seat. The other seats are still vacant. And the Ancient of Days took his seat and describes his vesture and his hair and his description. The uh, river of fire that was flowing and thousands upon thousands attending and myriads and myriads standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Okay. Then back to earth again, back to heaven again. Verse 13, I kept looking in the night visions. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. The Son of Man coming on the clouds. Is sparking any thinking? All right. And where does he go? He comes up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And was presented before him. And to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. That all the peoples... Nations and men of every language might serve him. See, this is far more than just simply the son of David deserving or receiving the Davidic throne. The son of David receiving the Davidic throne is an earthly activity that will take place at the second advent. Remember, the Davidic throne has always been an earthly throne. The, the territory of Israel has always been an earthly territory with earthly boundaries. Here we see something that's much greater. And it's the Son of Man that receives this, not the Son of David. So to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language, peoples, nations, and languages describes all of humanity that have descended from Adam and have been dispersed at Babel. This is the worldwide dominion of the Son of Man over the realm of man. His dominion is everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed all right so that's uh that that's eternal right when does that end Trick question eternal kingdoms can never end all right so here's the precedent now all these times in the gospels that he refers himself to as the son of man was a big stumbling block to the pharisees and to the jewish religious leaders of the time and yet it is not without an old testament precedent it should have sparked Lots of questions, because they didn't care about the Son of Man, to be honest. All they wanted was the Son of David, <laughs> right? Let's get that Davidic throne back. They haven't had a Davidic king since Jeconiah was carried off. You can't really count Zedekiah. He was appointed and phony anyway. But since Jeconiah, there has not been a legitimate Davidic king on the throne. That's what they want. They want a Davidic king back. They want dominion over the Gentiles. 
That other stuff with the Son of Man and any of the rest of that, not part of their concern. You almost think, and in many of their cases, that idea about redemption, (laughs) the sin problem, victory over the serpent, don't really care about that. We just want to rule over the Gentiles here. Right? And Jesus starts saying, you know, I've got to go to the cross and, and lay down my life. They say, oh, no, 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 can't do that. That'll get in the way of our political agenda. Right? What was their true priority in wanting to make him king? So there's the Daniel example. In the next chapter of Daniel, in Daniel 8.17, Daniel himself is referred to as son of man. And so we see that the prophets, it's the only use in Daniel here that refers to Daniel individually as the son of man. But he's given this vision. And it just scares him to death. Gives him the willies here in chapter 8. And, um, and so this angel comes near to him and, and strengthens him. He's on his face, but he's going to strengthen him. And he says, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. And I don't find that to be a coincidence at all. The, the prophet Daniel, who gives us the, the greatest Christological prophecies, looking forward to the coming Son of David, Son of man, and all the rest, uh, the 70 weeks and everything else. The dispensational scheme of Daniel is, is key. And Daniel is referred to here himself as son of man. Becomes a type. Acts absolutely becomes a type of Christ. But not nearly as much as Ezekiel. Let's look at Ezekiel. Daniel gets called this one time. Ezekiel gets called this 93 times. 93 times. And um, I didn't actually uh, jot the verses down. I figured they'd be easy enough to spot. I I spot the first one I'm looking at here at chapter 2 and verse 1. He said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And 93 times the prophet of the captivity is referenced as the Son of Man. Daniel was a prophet, but he was not commissioned to address Israel ministered to Gentile kings and he served a writing purpose, but he never, never was commanded to stand up before the people and say, thus saith the Lord, and deliver a a prophetic verbal message like most of the Old Testament prophets. Ezekiel was the prophet of the captivity. And I want you to consider how vital that is because he becomes the greatest type of Christ of all the prophets. If you consider that that Babylonian captivity for 70 years was a foreshadowing of of what Israel has now experienced since 70 AD, since Titus destroyed the temple. And the global dispersion that took place for 20 centuries until the, the nation was resurrected in, in uh, the 20th century. So Ezekiel becomes the, the great, most uh, Christ-like type of Christ of all the Old Testament prophets. And 93 times he's referred to here as the Son of Man. Think about it. The Son of Man towards a rebellious house of Israel and a rebellious house of Judah. Not occupying the land, not enjoying the covenant promises, not with the Davidic uh, king on the throne. A tremendous picture of the Christ himself. All right, so when Jesus here in Matthew 16, When Jesus here in Matthew 16 is asking, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? And I go, Amy, Yahweh, 
Who do you say that I am? There is so much doctrine involved here. And we find the crowds are largely confused. They've got three different opinions, and none of them have the Christ opinion. So, <laughs> all right. But Peter recognizes the reality. And that's what we get to under points three and four. Point three now is the confusion of the people. The confusion of the people under A, B, and C, John the Baptist, Elijah, and Jeremiah are one of the prophets. The confusion of the people. Well, some say you're John the Baptist. To me, that's got to be pretty amazing because there was a period of time where the two of them ministered side by side. <laughs> right? And you can pretty well rule that out if you've, uh, you know, I've had other people that I've had suspicions about. And until I see them in the same room at the same time, I'm kind of wondering if maybe they're the same person. Right? You don't know what I'm talking about? All right, never mind. But you think, you know, have you ever seen them together in the same place at the same time? Right? Think about it. I think they're the same person. They just show up in disguises occasionally. Until you see them in the same place, same time, then you say, okay, well, all right, game's up. They're different people. I admit that now. All right? Well, Jesus and John had a co-ministry in the early days before John was first arrest, uh, arrested. Jesus and his disciples also had a baptism ministry there at the River Jordan. So the idea that he's John returned is kind of bizarre. And yet, among the Galileans who did not witness that early Judean ministry, who may not have known about that early Judean ministry, and who never saw the active John the Baptist ministry, this could be a leading candidate, a leading theory. All right? John the Baptist. The fear of John the Baptist's return was spawned by Herod's guilt over his execution. And we notice that if we back up a couple chapters to chapter 14, where he uh, had actually executed John... And then news started coming to him about this Jesus character. Now, remember, Herod here was a tetrarch. He was simply over Galilee. That was his region. That was his realm. His citizens were there. He had no involvement uh, down there in Judea where, the, where John's ministry took place or where Jesus ministered with him. So he started hearing news about Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has risen from the dead, and that is why miraculous powers are at work in him. So he's got a little bit of guilt working against him here, doesn't it? <laughs> he's haunted, rather haunted by the fact that, it, that he's the one responsible for... Uh, he put him under arrest, but then he was afraid to kill him. Because he, he started to figure out, you know what? This guy's a prophet. <laughs> uh, and, and he didn't like having him roaming free and preaching against his marriage or whatever, but he wasn't about to murder him until then he's trapped into it with the dancing of his stepdaughter and the things that happened there. So there was a theory, John the Baptist... And it's amazing the hysteria in people who will believe anything, even if it can't possibly be true, but they believe it because they're afraid. They believe it because they're afraid. You know, I believe that's a driving issue that, that pushes a whole bunch of people to evolution. They are afraid of God and their accountability to God and what he expects and what he what he approves of, what his absolute standard of righteousness is all about. And it's much easier to just go ahead and act like there is no such God, in which case we're not accountable. Uh, it's all just a great big accident. You know, a ball of gas exploded and molecules fell into place and, you know, 
lo and behold, total coincidence, but goo became life, became whatever, and here we are. You realize how irrational that whole thing is? But people will cling to it? I truly believe there's some fear involved there. Because it's only a fool that has said in his heart there is no God. I believe a lot of guys will say it externally. But in the dark of night, in the privacy of their soul, they've got to face their creator. They're still a creature at the end of the day. All right, so that's the first area of confusion. second area of confusion was Elijah. And to be honest, this is a very legitimate confusion. You've got to find out, is this Elijah? Elijah's coming. The forerunner's on the way. Maybe he's the forerunner. If you haven't investigated it, you better. Elijah, the coming forerunner, was expected for centuries. He's been expected since Isaiah, 600 years before Christ, and Malachi, 400 years before Christ. Now, Isaiah doesn't specifically give us the name, but it does. I listed these out of order. Malachi 3.1, Malachi 4.5, Isaiah 40, verse 3, and then the confusion we see in John 1, 20 and 21. They were waiting for Elijah. They still are to this day. Do you know any Jewish people today? They still are waiting for Elijah. When they, when they set their table for their Passover Seder, what do they do? There is a place at the end of the table that, that there's a seat there. No one sits there. There's a plate. There's all the, the wine. Now, everything is laid out as if, and it's for Elijah. It's the expectation that the forerunner is on the way. We'll uh, be blessed to have Arnold Fruchtenbaum here in uh, January or February when we get that locked in, and he'll, uh, he'll give us some wonderful teaching on that. All right, back to uh, Malachi then. Or as uh, Fruchtenbaum is fond of saying, the, uh, the great Italian prophet from the Old Testament. He says, turn back to the prophet Malachi. Anyway, he's not Malachi. He's not Italian. That's just a joke. It's not really a very good joke, but Fruchtenbaum tells it better than I do. Malachi, meaning my messenger. Malak is a messenger or an angel. Malachi is my messenger, my angel. And he says in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I'm going to send Malachi. Behold, I'm going to send my messenger. God lifts up a prophet who has the name Malachi, the name my messenger, and chooses this prophet to give the final book of the Old Testament to promise my messenger is on the way. Behold, I'm going to send Malachi, my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. He's, he's a forerunner, a herald, somebody that clears the way. And the Lord, Yahweh, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. And they should have known clearly that when the Christ appeared, that the Christ would be none other than Jehovah. Yahweh is coming. The forerunner is clearing the way, but it is Yahweh, it is Jehovah, who is coming. And who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? That's why you send the forerunner. You send the forerunner to make sure that the, uh, the ones expecting the kingdom are prepared for the kingdom. That they repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That they're in fellowship. That they're walking in the light. 
that they're humble before the presence of Yahweh. Consider how Moses had to take off his shoes to approach a burning bush. What, is the, what are the people supposed to be when Yahweh appears among them? So you, sit, you send a forerunner. You send a forerunner. In chapter 4 we're told that uh, Malachi is a title. My messenger is not to be rendered as a proper name because here we're given the proper name. Malachi 4 or 5, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Notice what he's going to do. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. The population, Israel, will be prepared for the Christ and the forerunner will do that. Now John the Baptist had that function for the first advent. Elijah himself has that function for the second advent, if indeed that's how that plays out. All right, when we bounce back now to Isaiah 40, we find that the message had previously been delivered, just not with a name attached to it. Malachi is in agreement with Isaiah, and you put the two together. Isaiah was a couple of centuries ahead of Malachi. And I want you to notice, this is the message of comfort remember what's significant about Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah has 66 books I mean 66 chapters the Bible has 66 books the Old Testament has 39 books the New Testament has 27 books Isaiah has 39 chapters that has tremendous developments of wrath and judgment and law kind of orientation starting in chapter 40 we start with comfort O comfort my people and chapters 40 through 66 have a tremendous wealth of grace and comfort and forgiveness and blessings. So chapter 40, comfort, O comfort my people, says your God, speak kindly to Jerusalem. Call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Warfare is ended because God has finished with his discipline upon her and now he's prepared to bless her. A voice is calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Make smooth in the desert a highway for our God. So this is the call, the prophetic call that is uttered in Isaiah's prophecy. It's expanded in Malachi's prophecy. It's fulfilled in the person of John the Baptist in the first advent. And it's fulfilled by Elijah himself in the tribulation, anticipating the second advent. Let every valley be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, so on and so forth. So this is the uh, prophetic call for the forerunner. And we get to John chapter 1. And I'm going to see about a reference in Luke chapter 1. I might want to add here too. Yeah, hold your finger there at John 1. Also, I'm going to take a look here at Luke. And... 
the prophecy that Zechariah utters. John is born. They name his name John. And uh, for nine months, Zacharias has been struck silent. Now he gets to open his mouth. When he opens his mouth, the Holy Spirit's in it, and he's uttering a prophecy. So his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, and a uh, tremendous message here, starting in verse 68, but I want to key you in on verse 76. Because after talking all this wonderful stuff about the Christ, he then turns to this infant, John the Baptist, and says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us. Notice, to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Zacharias is referencing his infant son here and John, recognizing John is the forerunner. He is the herald. He is the herald. There's no question about that. You will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Same language as Isaiah and Malachi. And yet, they come to him and they ask, Are you Elijah? John 1.19 Priests and Levites were sent, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And then they asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not Elijah. Now, does that, that, that throws a question out there, doesn't it? Because he fulfills the Elijah expectation, but he's not Elijah. He has come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Well, so too did Elisha. After Elijah departed, Elisha received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. But now here's John coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. And when he's asked, are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Then they say, well, are you the prophet? That Deuteronomy 18.18 guy Moses talked about. He said, no. Dummy, that's the Christ. Don't you know anything? (laughs) All right. He doesn't say that. They don't know that. Now, then they said to him, well, who are you? We've got to give an answer. And look what he quotes in verse 23. He says, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. So he is, but he's not. He is, but he's not. The disciples continue to struggle with that. Uh, They say, well, how come Elijah has to come first? And Jesus said, Elijah is coming. But if you care to accept it, Elijah already came. Anyway, all of this comes into effect comes into question because of the fact that we have advantage of knowing there's two advents. First advent, second advent, we're in between the two. We can look back, see what was done. We can look forward, see what's yet to be done. They didn't have that. They were looking forward to an advent, the coming of the Christ. And so far as they knew, it was one package deal. He's showing up, destroying Rome, setting up the kingdom, and things are great. The idea that he was going to show up and get crucified and go to glory and that 2,000 and more years would go by before he comes a second time, that was not known in the Old Testament. Absolutely not known. And so they're expecting a herald. Here's a herald. But he's not. Because he is, but he's not. He is making the way straight, but they're rejecting their king. They're going to crucify their king. And so Elijah still is coming. All right? 
So we, we have our human confusion because of our hindsight and knowing about the two advents. They had their human confusion because of their human uh, limitations and only knowing about the one advent. And yet God's faithful in every single promise. Does, does John fulfill the Elijah promise? Expectations? Yes. In the spirit and power of Elijah? Absolutely. Was he a forerunner? You bet. Did he accomplish what he was supposed to accomplish? Yes, he did. But is Elijah still coming? Yes, he is. Because there's now a second advent that requires a forerunner. And a people that need to be have their hearts turned back in repentance. In fact, more so than they needed in the first advent. Because their, their darkness is darker. Their rebellion is deeper. Think about how negative they were in the first advent. That was before they crucified the Christ. There is a serious repentance that they, they will look upon him whom they pierced. Makes second advent that much more severe. All right. So there's a crowd that says, oh, this is John the Baptist. Mainly, I expect that was the Galilean confusion, reflecting the guilt by Herod and the fear of that. Then there was the crowd that thought he was Elijah. Here's the forerunner. And then there was a group that thought it was Jeremiah or one of the prophets who had risen again. It's one of those Old Testament guys came back. As we mentioned, there was tremendous debate over that Deuteronomy 18 passage. Moses promised a prophet like him to arise. So, some opinions, some theories started to spout out there. Now, Matthew 16:14, the record is Jeremiah. In Mark 8, it reads, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And in Luke 9, it says, Jer- uh, one of the prophets of old who has risen again. And we kind of combine all three statements into one long sentence there. Jeremiah, or one of the prophets of old who has risen again. And some of the rabbis looked at the text in Deuteronomy 18. And they keyed in on the word arisen, or arise. That a prophet would arise. God would lift up. And they said, you know what? That could have reference to a restoration to life. That could have reference to a resurrected prophet returning. That God would lift up a prophet that had previously died and now would be lifted back up again. And they linked that again with the idea that, hey, you know what? Elijah's coming back and he never died. So we've got a prophet coming back who never died, and it looks like Moses is talking about another prophet that's going to come back who did die. And they had some, some thoughts about that, some teachings on that, some theories about that, and it was all studies basically grounded exegetically out of Deuteronomy 18 with some other uh, mystical-type interpretations thrown in there. In fact, Jeremiah was a very common figure for uh, legendary writings, My newest books is Lewis Ginsburg, The Legends of the Jews. In fact, I've only had this book about a month now. And um, the, uh, let me pull up Jeremiah here. Got some legends on Jeremiah that I think are worthwhile. This is non-versified. It should be versified. The exile. Here we go. Jeremiah. 
And this will just kind of give you some idea. None of this is biblical. As far as I'm concerned, it's a bunch of hooey, it's a bunch of fraud, it's a bunch of garbage. However, it's fraudulent hooey garbage that was known to this generation of people. And it kind of forms that expectation of what they were waiting for. So in a backdrop of what they were dealing with, we don't want to ignore their legends and their traditions and their mythology with respect to some of these guys. All right. Um, in this depraved time, that is the time of wicked King Zedekiah, it was first and foremost Jeremiah to whom was delegated the task of proclaiming the word of God. He was a descendant of Joshua and Rahab. Tradition, I don't believe it's true. It's not consistent with the biblical record. And his father was the prophet Hilkiah. That may have a semblance of truth to it, um, but again, we're reading legend rather than scripture. He was born while his father was fleeing from the persecution of Jezebel, the murderess of the prophets. I think the time frame is a bit off, but who knows. At, this very, at his very birth, he showed signs that he was destined to play a great part. All right. Now, we know from Jeremiah 1, you familiar with that passage? God said, while you were in the womb, I knew you. And he was called as a prophet from the womb. Okay, that's biblical. And I believe that because it's in the word of God. This other legend uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not buying this other thing. All right. But at his very birth, he showed signs that he was destined to play a great part. He was born circumcised. <laughs> go, wow. All right. Again, it's not in the Bible. Show me in the Bible and I'll believe it. But this uh, Jewish legend is something else. And he scarcely had left his mother's womb when he broke into wailing. And his voice was, not the, was uh, the voice not of a babe, but of a youth. And he cried, my bowels, my bowels tremble. The walls of my heart, they are disquieted. My limbs quake. Destruction upon destruction I bring upon the earth. Now that would scare a mom to death. Assuming, of course, that she survived the shock of seeing her son born circumcised. <laughs> right? And then he starts prophesying there from just a real quick delivery process. Uh, in this strain, he continued to moan and groan, complaining of the fa uh, faithlessness of his mother. And when she expressed her amazement at the unseemly speech of her newborn son, Jeremiah said, Not thee do I mean, my mother. Not to thee doth my prophecy refer. I speak of Zion, and against Jerusalem are my words directed. So mom's off the hook. He wasn't preaching about her. Um, <laughs> she adorns her daughters, arrays them in purple, puts golden crowns upon their heads. Robbers will come and strip them of their ornaments. As a lad, he received the call to be a prophet, but he refused to obey, saying, O oh Lord, I cannot go as a prophet to Israel, for uh, when lived there a prophet whom Israel did not for who or for when lived there a prophet whom Israel did not desire to kill. So he turns down his work assignment and says, I can't go there and be a prophet. They kill those guys. <laughs> All right. Moses and Aaron, they sought to stone with stones. Elijah the Tishbite, they mocked because his hair was grown long. And they called after Elisha, Go up, thou bald head. No, I cannot go to Israel, for I am still not but a lad. Now, that's kind of consistent. You know, he was, he was uh, uncomfortable in his youth, and God reassured him in Jeremiah chapter 1. But this, uh, all this tradition really gets, gets brought out. Uh, I'm going to skim through some of these other items. Because these are the legends of his youth and his first appearance. They had these other legends with his uh, death and his return.
and I uh, had intended to actually highlight some of this yesterday so I'd, my eye would spot it better than uh, just skimming through it here this morning. The prophet fell upon evil times under Zedekiah. He had both the people and the court against him. Nor was that surprising in a day when not even the high priest in the temple bore the sign of the covenant upon their bodies. Uh, Jeremiah had called forth general hostility by condemning the alliance with Egypt against Babylonia and favoring peace with Nebuchadnezzar. And this, though to all appearances, to help uh, the help of the Egyptians would prove of good effect for the Jews. And they thought Egypt could bail them out. And they formed that alliance that if they sided with Egypt, then they'd be protected from Babylon. Even though God had already taken captives to Babylon, Daniel and Ezekiel were already there, and he'd warned them that the next time they were being swept away. All right, and then, of course, he's there when the city falls, and he's, his life is saved. The general that destroys the city is commanded to save his life. The conflict that he had with Hannah, uh, Hananiah, the false prophet. And... Uh, different legends that grew up around that. All right. In any event, Israel had these expectations, and some of them were that Jeremiah is coming back, or one of the other prophets will arise. And uh, so they, uh, they had their little theories about that. All of that confusion was wrong, which leads us to the certainty of Peter. But who do you say that I am? And Peter doesn't give him any maybes. Peter doesn't give him any, well, you could be's. Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ. And then he amplifies what he means by that, the son of the living God. He recognizes the earthly office. He recognizes the position as uh, Messiah, Christ. He also recognizes the deity as God the Son. So he has put together here Son of David. I'm sorry, Son of Man, Son of God, and Christ in this one answer right here. Who do you say the Son of Man is? The Christ, Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven that was not a bible class peter had gotten from any human being not a bible class that had come and and he had been a disciple of john the baptist and for two and a half years he'd been a disciple of jesus christ and yet this one particular insight was supplied by the father i believe not just to peter i believe to all 12 of these apostles of the lamb and that conviction by the father was that they were face to face with the Christ, Son of the Living God. So we will pick up on this next week. We are four minutes to the top of the hour. And rather than get a jump on Peter's statement, because this then forms the core of the Lord's celebration with the blessed are, and then the, uh, the promise, I will build my church. Now, I want you to be thinking between now and then, what church is he talking about? Is he talking about Austin Bible Church? No, that would be a local church. Okay. Is he talking about the church universal? Most people say yes. However, church is a mystery. Church is unrevealed. 
the church is not revealed until the day of Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and the mystery is unfolded to the apostles. Peter here, who had the Father teaching him, receives a message from the Lord, Upon this rock I will build my ecclesia. And if all you have to work with is an Old Testament, what are you supposed to think? Now, we with hindsight, of course, we look back and we say, oh, he's talking about the church. But is he? Is that how Peter would have taken it? And what was Peter supposed to think for the next year, plus Pentecost, plus 50 days, plus uh, whatever length of time until the mystery started to be unfolded to Peter? Now, we understand by first and second Peter, he'd started to put some things together, right? Those are wonderful books. But in the book of Acts, even up to chapter 15 or so, Peter's still a little fuzzy on some stuff. Even in Galatians, Paul had to confront Peter with some things and say, Peter, you're not getting hold of this grace dispensation yet. You're taking the side of the Judaizers and you're, you're compromising your integrity. So Peter still had some adjustments to make. And, and even in chapter 10, the Lord says, go have dinner with Cornelius. And Peter says, no, Lord, I can't do that. Nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. And Jesus three times said, Peter, you're not getting a handle on this age of grace yet. So when, when we know how thick Peter is, he's called rock because he's got rocks in his head. You know, he's, he's thick. He's not exactly the sharpest knife in the drawer putting these things all together. Not even as late as Acts 15 is he putting these things together. And in, in 2 Peter, he says, you know what? Paul writes a bunch of complicated things that are hard to understand. So when Jesus says, you are Peter and upon this Petra, I will build my ecclesia. Was Peter supposed to just snap to just like that and get a whole insight into the dispensation of the church? No. And the Lord didn't expect him to. The Lord did not expect him to. So we will uh, spend some time on that. What was an ecclesia to the Old Testament? What was the ecclesia to the Jewish people? And uh, we'll see what some of those expectations might have been. And what they're going to be. What they're going to be in the Millennial Kingdom. Because an ecclesia is a called out body that has been gathered together. Right? Dearly beloved, we've been gathered together. We've been ecclesia. We are an ecclesia. What is the ecclesia of Jesus Christ going to be? Not the bride, not the church as you and I understand it, but he will have a gathering after the millennium. Anyway, we'll, uh, we'll tackle that next week. Lord willing, rapture pending. If we hear a trumpet between now and then, uh, we get to see it unfolded live before our very eyes, which is a lot better than, uh, than a Bible class, even a Bible class with PowerPoint. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your truth, your faithful, faithful truth. And Father, we thank you that you teach us a little bit here, a little bit there, line upon line, precept upon precept. You walk us through these things a step at a time, feeding us uh, like babes until we can handle the solid food. And even then, with the solid food, feeding us with the right portions, the right amounts, at the right time to put these things together for the glory of your Son. And so we thank you for this study. We pray that we'll be equipped to have a handle on this passage. In particular, Father... Because uh, as church-age believers, as Melchizedek priests in the Holy of Holies in the third heaven, Father, we operate in the earthly realm and the heavenly realm. And if we have a misunderstanding of what binding and loosing is about, if we misapply this doctrine, 
then we're in trouble. We want to have a clear understanding so that we might fulfill that which you have designed us for in our present stewardship. We thank you for all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.